If you see a woman sitting outside a temple watching people versus a man sitting outside a temple watching people, <laughs> I'm just, because a significant amount of work that I'm doing is observing people in, in a community space. Yeah. So it's literally sitting down with a notebook and watching people. That's, yeah. that's what I'm going to do. The game I play is a very interesting one. It's imagination in a tight straitjacket. Because by looking at the stars, we are literally looking back through time. And as the world gets smaller and more connected, the narrative of freedom is rubbing off on people of different cultures and religions, however remote. You can't get anywhere if you just copy what somebody told you. You have to be challenging things all the time, challenging everything, you know, uh, and thinking new thoughts and so on. Um, hi, welcome to Blab Quotes. My name is Marina. I've got Ingua. We're from um, uh, the ICS, and we've got one other ICS student, Vanika, who will be talking to us about her research journey and her current project. Welcome, Vanika. Thanks for having me. Hi, Veronica. Um, so basically, we we knew you were a lecturer before you come here. So we would like to you to study to talk about your journey uh, transitioning from a lecturer to a student, please. Um, so I've done a bunch of different things before I got here, and it's been a fairly long, convoluted journey. Uh, I am an architect, and I've taught architecture students, and I've also taught heritage students. And I've been a professional and a consultant, and I've dabbled in a bit of research before uh, starting my PhD. Uh, teaching has been one of the most amazing things I've done, but also one of the most frustrating things I've done. Uh, so I do know what it is like to be a better student now, maybe. <laughs> uh, and no, it, it's true uh, because uh, I know all the things that I do that really annoy uh, my teachers. For uh, example. For example, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, just uh, for example, asking inane questions, you know, just. Because I've been a fairly good student. I'm, I'm one of those nerdy kids who sits in the front of the class and asks the teachers uh, questions. And I'm awake most of the classes. And I've always been that way. So I'm one of those type A people who annoys the rest of the class. And now I, I see those type A students in my class and they annoy the crap out of me. Um, <laughs> but they're also the most challenging. So uh, I've started tutoring again at Western Sydney. Okay. And that was exciting. So it's nice being a student and teaching simultaneously. How is it different in Australia teaching um, compared to where you were teaching before? I really can't share all the stories. Because <laughs> uh, some, somewhere some human resource... Uh, uh, is is watching me um, <laughs> let's just say i had far more freedom back home okay. to do what i like to scare people as <laughs> scare. much as i needed to <laughs> uh, where you can't do that anymore um, and uh, there has been a shift in uh, in the way i was taught and the way i taught and now the way i teach 
in that uh, I was petrified of, of all the teachers who taught me. And uh, I didn't know any other way. And it seemed that that is the way uh, pedagogy works. Uh, but then when I started teaching, uh, that's how I was taught. So I, I did a bit of that. And after a point, it seemed like this isn't really what I wanted to do. And also, um, the university systems have changed, where teaching is no longer uh, a vocation, it's a service. So uh, <laughs> I've begun to realize that I'm a service provider, mm, okay. not so much uh, uh, you know, uh, a professor who's uh, automatically going to be given respect. Mm. So uh, that has changed my perspective dramatically. Um, that doesn't mean that I don't teach with the same amount of passion anymore. It's just that I'm cognizant of the fact that students expect completely different things. Hmm. And that's not just Australia, India. It's also just uh, the way the systems are set up now. Hmm. Cool. Um, let's talk a little bit about your current research project. Mm -hmm. um, as, what's, your, what's your PhD research on? Do you want to just tell us a little bit about your project? Yes. So the short uh, <laughs> description is that I'm looking at uh, post-disaster reconstruction of heritage sites, uh, particularly in Nepal. I'm looking at two different timelines. Uh, so I'm looking at uh, the post-disaster reconstruction that happened after 1934, and the reconstruction that is happening right now after 2015. And the reason I'm looking at two different earthquakes is that the entire world has changed in this time. Uh, the conception of heritage has changed. Uh, globalization rates, uh, meanings have changed. And uh, the way people do things has changed. Or not. <laughs> so so uh, the assumption that everything has changed and... Uh, everything is more complex, is not necessarily true, uh, is one of the things that I'm work is one of my working theories, that uh, there are some things that are continuous. And uh, Nepal is a country which has had uh, an earthquake every century. So you can actually go back in the history of Nepal back to 1255 and see an earthquake and reconstruction. So it's a thing that happens, and it's not like people are used to it but civilization is used to it. And the way they look at their buildings is, is a specific response to this fact of cyclic earthquakes. And that's what I'm interested in. Okay. So I was curious, like you uh, as an uh, Indian researcher at Nepal, mm -hmm. what kind of ethics responsibilities <laughs> you have to consider when you, do, you are going to conduct research over there? So that's... Uh, when I started writing my research proposal and I picked Nepal, a bunch of people asked me, oh, why Nepal? I'm like, well, that's where the most recent earthquake, the most significant disaster was. And as an Indian, I think I know Nepal, which is such a, it's such a colonist uh, perspective. Um, and I began to question that when I came, came here. And uh, I don't know Nepal. That's a lie. That's just, and that is blatant uh, arrogance as an Indian to an, Imagine that you know your little brother country, which is the way India literally looks at Nepal. So as I've come here and began to go through my research proposal and actually question what I know about this context that I want to study, the answer is nothing. And ethically, that puts me in a slightly questionable place. But the good thing is I recognize that. So, um, And I'm also a Hindu, and uh, that puts me in a specific kind of uh, religious perspective. Um, so I recognize that I am an outsider, 
but at the same time i'm not as much on the outside as i could be um and that gives me a unique uh, way of looking at nepal and the other reason why nepal is is a good study for me is that i did look at uh, uttarakhand which is in india after the uh, floods and that was too close uh it's not like i'm not uh, sympathetic to uh, what is going on in nepal but i have a certain amount of distance which which i think is useful for a person uh, looking at uh, reconstruction great um now in terms of um heritage let's talk a little bit about heritage because i think it's quite a contested concept mm-hmm. um and and when we so can you just maybe i suppose unpack heritage a little bit um and and tell us like whose heritage are we talking about so um the non academic answer to what heritage is and uh, whose heritage we're talking about is it's simply why do people rebuild like if if you strip away all the fancy terminology that i'm using the the simple thing that i'm looking at is why do people continue to rebuild in the same place and rebuild the same things as they were before so what drives them to do that uh whose heritage it is is such a complicated uh, notion because uh even if you we were to look at a single ethnic group or a single idea of community that is not something that actually exists because uh, the idea that oh the locals are a cohesive group is just not true the idea that the international professionals that look at heritage for example unesco or organizations like icomos or any other un based organizations that they are one unit that's simply not true uh there are multiple groups a lot of these groups are just loose associations of people with uh, somewhat similar agendas mm. uh, many of these agendas uh, are at conflict with each other all the time uh there are con- contestations that happen at a local level uh individuals within groups have power mm. so heritage is a lot about power relations and who gets to decide what kind of power relations need to be expressed as heritage uh that's not to say that heritage is this dark uh, political thing <laughs> it's a very meaningful thing because otherwise why why bother but it is something that is not quite simple as good it is just uh, how people perceive it so in that sense it's abstract Okay. but at the same time it's very real because uh and political yeah in, in yes for, for so it is both political yeah. and abstract real and it's just uh which is why it makes it very hard to write about yeah but also so fun to look at okay so yeah sorry i i was curious about like uh you are looking at uh heritage through the perspective of a disaster mm-hmm. so how do you bring those two together like as a um interdisciplinary research um yeah so uh disasters or more broadly destruction has sort of shaped the way heritage is framed internationally and locally okay in that the minute something is at threat of being lost that's when it becomes heritage is is something that i'm looking at specifically so for example you have a building which has been around for 100 years uh like the penn station was in new york uh no one has anything to say about it till someone wants to tear it down and then suddenly everyone's like oh but you can't because we value it 
and so the the threat of destruction has often sort of pushed things to be called heritage uh in that sense looking at disasters and heritage is a is a fairly uh reasonable idea uh also a lot of uh, policy and funding these days uh is moving from development to disasters uh you know uh, the constant reports about uh climate change is leading to greater disasters than ever before we are all as humanities at greater risk than ever before these are tropes that you're all familiar with uh within these tropes uh money is being spent uh and that money is being spent not only in building uh infrastructure but also in investment in culture as soft power mm-hmm. so that is why it's interesting to look at heritage and disasters from the perspective of uh sustainable development uh, un uh, politics and how how these politics work at an international scale no, okay. that's that's and it's quite broad right like i mean cuz i mean heritage and and disaster as concepts or even as political agendas are, are understood at a very macro level mm-hmm. but i but I, i think i'm also interested in how um cuz when you're going for your field work in nepal like how do people's everyday realities mesh with these things like how do people understand heritage um and what's happening yeah. sort of in a post disaster context in their built environment how do they understand that as sort of an everyday level how do they interact with this so um i i visited nepal in 2017 um and uh, half the buildings had disappeared and half the buildings are being sort of propped up with bamboo uh, props and uh, they're like precarious and they're going to fall or not but they just look like they're all going to just fall any second but life is going on so the old man who sells flowers outside the temple is still selling flowers outside the temple sometimes the temple doesn't exist okay but flowers are still being sold in front of the temple and the lady who used to buy the flowers in front of the temple is still buying the flowers and wow. offering them to a temple that no longer exists okay so uh for an outsider it's like what is happening here yeah. but uh the temple exists it may not physically exist but the idea that it is a building and it is a sacred space is is very much alive uh that to me is extremely interesting mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. beyond the legislation and policy and aid uh, just uh, the fact that uh, something can exist without physically existing okay uh and that something can be rebuilt and be considered to have always been there mm-hmm. so they will reconstruct a building uh, sometimes it doesn't even look like it did before but no one cares and it's still the old 500 year old building So for example if you go to Nepal and ask the age of a building often the answer you get is not what we understand as a factual answer so they'll say oh it's been here for 500 years when actually it's probably literally been there only for 30 wow okay but mm. the idea of continuity goes back oh so okay. it That's also really interesting. Con- yeah. yeah it it's conflates with the idea of uh, hindu and buddhist beliefs of uh, rebirth as well where oh wow where it's so, literally you're born again so the space itself is kind of re like yeah. like born again mm-hmm. it's it's very very interesting you have any I, other yeah mm. i was curious like earlier you mentioned you are studying like the disasters uh in 1930s and now mm-hmm. are you doing like comparative studies like different repair work how that has been done 
and how that affect people's life. Like you just mentioned, the everyday life, like it doesn't actually change that much. But what about like if you look at the historical perspective, um, how the disaster changed the everyday life? Mm -hmm. So um, I'm looking at uh, one of the cities in detail in Kathmandu Valley, uh, which is Bhaktapur, uh, which is a smaller, uh, older settlement uh, compared to the other two cities of Patan and Kathmandu. The reason why I'm looking at Bhaktapur is that uh, it has had, uh, it became poorer earlier because the, it, it falls on a, trade route between India and Tibet, which was shut down many centuries ago. And so it, it decayed earlier compared to the other two, which was still strategically important. Uh, what this did was uh, sort of put it in a time machine in, in a sense. Uh, but this time machine that I'm talking about is in the 1900s. Since then, it has opened up, tourism has come in, globalization has infiltrated the tourism industry has considerably changed Bhaktapur as well. But it has a, a, a cohesiveness uh, because of a m bunch of different things that acted upon it uh, in the 1800s. Uh, the Germans, uh, through the German government, uh, entered Bhaktapur in 1970s as part of the Bhaktapur Development Project, uh, which is a super interesting pre-World Bank era kind of intervention where foreign aid is being dispersed for reconstruction. And this is happening back in the 1970s to the 1990s, um, which is uh, before aid and the politics of aid had become a worldwide phenomenon. And uh, how the local uh, Bhaktapur municipality was formed as a result of this kind of intervention and as a resistance to international agents. So um, the lives of... Uh, people in Bhaktapur changed dramatically after 1934 uh, because one-fourth of their city disappeared and they disappeared. Uh, so, of course, their lives changed dramatically. But uh, following that change from 1934 to 2000, a process of reconstruction has been going on, which is a long time if you really think about it. But it's also been punctuated by other earthquakes. Okay. Mm. And then they finally figure out some things. There's still developmental issues because Nepal as a country is a poverty. It's, it's, in, it's got complex politics, ethnic uh, violence. Uh, it's, there are multiple things apart from the earthquakes that are acting on, okay. on Nepal. Mm -hmm. um, but the lives of people are being constantly reconstructed, mm -hmm. not just as a result of the earthquake, but also as a result of the politics and as a result of... Uh, multiple other things that are happening simultaneously. So it's earthquakes are one of the sort of contexts that I'm setting up, okay. but it's not the only one. All right. Mm. There's many factors at play. There, yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in terms of like sort of um, implications, um, I mean, are you, are you like within this, within this research or within your project, is there some sort of policy implications that you're expecting out of it or, or aiming for within your, within your study or what are the sort of broad implications? I think I might be going backwards because uh, I started uh, with... Poli so the reason I went in 2017 was to look at Nepal's... Uh, I was invited for a workshop looking at Nepal's reconstruction policy. 
And that was so problematic uh, because uh, it's a bunch of uh, archaeologists and architects sitting in a room uh, deciding how Nepal should rebuild its structures, mm. which doesn't work. I mean, uh, not only is it problematic because it's, com- it's not even a top-down because it's just top yeah. and it doesn't even influ- infiltrate down. So it's not even like uh, we have a policy and we are able to implement it. And that's mm. the same case in India. I, I wrote some policy work for heritage and it's not top down it's just top and it just stops there and we've Mm. got it on paper it looks good no one implements it uh, and that's that Mm. Uh, so I don't know whether I'm looking at policy anymore because uh, I I can't solve governance (laughs) in any of this kind of that's not happening yeah Uh, no I think it's just nice, nice to write down. This it might have policy implications. I don't think it will. <laughs> no. Uh, but but yeah. the thing with policy is always like uh, pick and choose. It depends on people who are in power, what kind of policy they want. You yeah. can come out with really fancy policies, but like Veronica said, it's like top. It's top thing. It cannot reach down. Yeah, and I think that the bottom-up approach is also not necessarily, you know, it's I don't know whether it's in no, this context, no. right? I don't think, and I don't think it needs to. Uh, so what I'm looking at is people reconstruct and they figure out their own systems. And maybe the best thing to do in some scenarios is to leave it alone, which may be a very unpopular thing to say, but... Uh, so what, what implications would you, are you then considering in that case? I think uh, the thing that I'm... Con- the reason why this research is important is that one very little uh, critical work has been done on heritage in South Asia in general. Mm. Um, and there is a perspective that needs to be uh, described in order for... Even if hypothetically we were looking at policy there is absolutely no understanding of how South Asia looks at its heritage. Mm. So that that needs work. Um, But also how disasters uh, create heritage. So currently all all the discourse is about how disasters threaten heritage. But uh, disasters result in sites being created in, in, in their destruction. So you have sites of commemoration. Mm. Uh, you have uh, ruins. Uh, you have sites which are reconstructed as symbols of people's resilience. So uh, there is this whole narrative which which is just beginning to emerge, which I want to add to. Okay. Um, so I don't know whether we'll get to policy, but uh, I think there is a lot of stuff that needs to be described, which has, hasn't so far. Mm. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's uh, really interesting, like, uh, about your projects and the impacts. Um, so this you probably talked about earlier, but I was curious. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on your positioning uh, in the field with respect to your gender, your uh, ethnicity, and nationality, like, as a intersectional approach to, to address the research question you are, you're working on now? Is that like uh, super challenging for you in, you know, the, the environment we are sitting now, the multiculturalism in Australia, does that affect your research project as well? 
Sorry, it's a long question. You did talk about being Indian and yeah, like working yeah, in, yeah. in Nepal and being a Hindu and working in Nepal, but I suppose gender is something that we can yeah. p- potentially address, especially architecture being, I suppose, within that space quite a... It is a male-dominated yeah. profession, yes. Um, surprisingly, a lot of uh, conservation professionals in India are women. Okay. Oh, okay. Uh, I suspect that's also to do with gender because it doesn't pay that well. So um, men leave it. Yeah. Okay. Um, but that is a support. whole different uh, <laughs> discussion that I'm not going into. Um, Why not? Uh, because uh, the <laughs> that's that's right. Right. That's, uh, politically uh, <laughs> incorrect, and I don't think I have the terms to articulate uh, this uh, in in a in a way which will not make me sound completely uh, sexist. Yeah. But <laughs> okay. it, it's a fact that there are. Uh, a majority of successful conservation practices in India are being led and run by women okay. and the employees are women, uh, which is surprising because all the laborers and the workmen and the engineers are still men. Okay. Uh, but conservation pays really poorly. Let, let me just put this uh, nicely. Uh, doing a PhD is actually financially a step up. So you can imagine how badly conservation could pay. Yeah. <laughs> wow. No, yeah. 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 So, so you do it just for the love of it, because uh, yeah. there is no other earthly reason uh, to take it up as as a profession. Okay. Um, but that apart, uh, as as a female looking at uh, heritage in Nepal, I've to be honest not really thought about it. Mm. I think it might give me access to places uh, that I might normally not get as a woman. Not uh, get. Yeah, because. Uh, you're perceived as less threatening oh. to a lot of community spaces, right? Wow, okay. If you see a woman sitting outside a temple watching people versus a man sitting outside a temple watching people, <laughs> I, I'm just, because a significant amount of work that I'm doing is observing people in, in a community space. Yeah. So it's literally sitting down with a notebook and watching people. That's, yeah. that's what I'm going to do. Uh, I think it's easier for me to do that. So I, I don't necessarily think... Uh, I think I might have a harder time dealing with some of the professionals. Okay. Mm. But not, uh, not that hard. I don't imagine it being uh, impossible because of the subject area that I'm looking at. Yeah. Wow. Okay. We'll see. I haven't <laughs> gone for field work yet, so this is all speculation at this point. Awesome. Yeah. Well, this sounds obviously really, really fascinating, Monica. It's a, it sounds like a great project, and, and obviously we, we really want to, um, you know, wish you all the best and see what comes out of it. And um, looking forward to some amazing findings from your from your research. Um, I think we're close to time up now, yeah. so we're probably just going to wind up. Um, and and thank you so much for being on. Black thank Coast you for having me. Oh, by the way, uh, Veronica has this amazing reading group uh, called <laughs> Space Study. So if uh, anybody is interested about uh, oh, yeah. space, heritage... Space and place. Space, yeah. space, space and place. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to contact her. We can provide her email address and other contact information if you want. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.